Hi everyone, welcome to church. We're so excited to share what God is doing in our midst. Please follow me for a few announcements. Lockdown is a time of prayer. Unity lies within the power to hear the same thing from God. Join us during this lockdown time to pray every morning at 6, only for 20 minutes on Zoom, or on Monday nights for intercession from 8 to 9 p.m. Explore with us the book of Daniel every Tuesday morning from 6.30 till 7 a.m. We are discussing one chapter at a time with a week of exploring in between. Let's search the historical context and relevance of Daniel's prophecies together. Our ministry is funded by the generous giving of our members and friends. Kindly support this ministry by giving towards our cause. We are all affected by the current circumstances, but sadly, some are more affected than others in this difficult time. Please help us to help those in need by giving towards our BodySurf account. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. A happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Uh, we want to thank you very much for joining us. This morning's offering message is um, very encouraging to me. It's a message that we've been speaking through with the accountability group that I'm with. And it's from John 11. And it's the story about Mary, Martha and Lazarus. And what I wanted to share with you this morning is just something that I found to be so encouraging in the fact that Jesus was so faithful to this family, so compassionate with this family, so in love with this family. Um, because of their relationship, they had such an amazing encounter with the King of Kings, in that Martha and Mary had lost their brother. He had been dead for four days in the tomb. And Christ came, and when he came in the scene, all that was necessary was a little bit of faith from the sisters and the Word of God to work in their hearts. And uh, the Word of God did, and it raised Lazarus from the dead. And I want to say to you this morning, just with this message, as you give, know that you're giving to a King whose Word brings life. To our, to our lives and to our situations and circumstances. Know that when we give, or even, not even when we, when we give, but just being in relationship with the King, His Word brings life. His Word can raise up situations back to life. His Word can bring a change and a transformation in, in a way that we never have anticipated. So be encouraged this morning and know that um, your offering goes a long way to the ministry and of course um, to the King of Kings. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing and we want to thank you for what you've given electronically. We want to thank you so much. If you're listening for the first time and joining us, please don't feel obligated to give. So good morning everybody. I'm really glad that you could join us today for today's sermon and um, I hope that you're sitting comfortably or lying down comfortably, whatever you're doing. You've got a cup of tea, coffee, um, just settle in and uh, look forward to, to what's coming today. For me, it's such a, you know, such a pleasure to be back in church. It's been several months um, for all of us. And um, yeah, it's just a reminder of, you know, how things have been in the past and uh, what we're looking forward to, to get back to. So um, just before I get into the sermon, as always, I want to pray and just pray for God's blessing. So Father, just thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your word. I just pray that, um, Father, the seed that's sown by this word will just go through that process, Lord, of 
being cultivated, um, taking root, and ultimately bearing fruit in the lives of those who receive it. So Father, just remembering that we, uh, we do this for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. So, it's time to let your scapegoat go. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So I'm not going to elaborate on that any further at this moment. What I want that to do, I just want to sow that as a seed into your heart. And through the sermon, I want that seed to go through its process. And by the end of it, we'll revisit that scripture. And um, hopefully it will have a deeper meaning to you by then. But So we're going to go back, um, back into late 90s. I'm not entirely sure of the exact date that I'm talking about. So forgive me for that. But um, it's roughly late 90s, possibly the beginning of the millennium. Um, but yeah, let's get into it. So I was, I was working at the time for a research company. Um, and at the time there was a friend of mine there who was also a Christian. Um, so we had that in common and our friendship sort of grew out of that. Um, you know, we got on, we got on pretty well. Um, and after a period of time, I think she left, she left before me. And we maintained our friendship after that. So I do recall that eventually she was working for her local church. Um, and I used to go and visit there, visit her there. We'd sit, we'd chat, you know, even while she was working at the time. Um, you know, and we, and we had a good friendship and it was something that, you know, I valued at the time. I recall on a particular day, I was there just, you know, visiting her, um, her usual chats. But there was something different about this particular day. She seemed a bit agitated for some reason. And I remember I was telling her about, you know, another lady friend that I, you know, I was interested in, in potentially in, in a relationship or something. Um, and I, I recall at the time as I was telling her, she, she was muttering something to herself. And the only thing I can remember her saying is my husband. And it was, you know, it wasn't seen directly to me. It was sort of under her breath, but it was audible enough for me to hear. Um, yeah, she was saying something about my husband. And I kind of, you know, brushed it off. You know, and, you know I thought, well, there, there must be something going on that I'm not aware of and that she doesn't particularly want to talk to me about. Um, so I left it. And I don't recall 
the time, but at some point, I think it was a phone call that we had. It may have been that same evening later, or it may have been possibly days later. It's a bit vague. But um, it was a particular time when the actual truth about what was happening there came to light. So during this conversation, she told me that she had a dream. And the dream was that God had told her in this dream that I was going to be her husband. Now, <laughs> you know, as much as I liked her as a friend, it's not something that I contemplated seriously with her, you know, a relationship leading to marriage ultimately. Um, but, you know, I received what she said at the time. Um, I don't recall how I reacted initially or what I said, um, but it's what happened after that, that really, you know, I want to get into. What became clear to me is that there was a seed sown. I noticed from that point onwards, whenever I spoke to her again, um, there was something not right, you know, this conversation that she'd had was was hanging over our relationship you know to the point where it actually dominated my thoughts whenever you know i encountered her again whenever we had a conversation my visits you know lessened to the point where they didn't happen anymore i realized you know i didn't particularly want to be around her but at the same time i was thinking well is there something in this is there something i'm missing is my heart not right you know, um, is God saying something to me about this that I'm not getting? And then I start to ponder all these things, you know. Um, and all these thoughts that were making me feel, you know, almost condemned in a sense, I associated with her, with my relationship with her. So this went on for some time. I can't say exactly how long it went on for. Um, possibly a year or two. I do recall, um, for example, that it got to the point where when I heard from her, it was, for example, on a birthday, you know, because our, our relationship had broken down so much that she would call me on a particular time. So my birthday was an opportunity for her to get in touch. Uh, and I just felt, well, the only reason you're calling me is because you think that, you know, we're going to get married. Um, and by this time, you know, I, I guess I started to resent her and to um, resent her being in my life. But I never actually said that to her at the time, you know. It was just something that I was feeling, something that had been sown in my heart. Um, so time passed, and eventually um, another friend of mine, another Christian friend, you know, I'd left the organization where I was working, where we were both working uh, previously. And I was working for another organization and through that I've met some other people. So this particular friend, she invited me to a, um, an event, a ministry event. And at this point, I'm going to stop the story and we're going to come back to it later. But my question is, um, what about you? What events have taken place in your life, possibly traumatic events or decisions that you've made that have sown a seed in your heart. 
How did you feel at the time? What did you do about it? So I want you to ponder that and think about, you know, maybe things that are still happening in your life now and trace it back to certain things that may have happened in the past and how they affected you. So while you're doing that, I'm gonna I'm gonna go into a another story. Now this particular story, um, it goes by the name of the Steve Bartman incident. So Steve Bartman, he was a Chicago Cubs fan, and this particular incident took place in 2003 on October the 14th. But in order for us to kind of really understand the events of that story, we actually need to go back in time. So we need to go back to 1945 on October the 6th. So picture this, this um, it's a baseball, it's the World Series of Baseball. So that's the, the ultimate, the final, you know, if you wanna represent it with another sport, it would be the final of any other sport. So the World Series played over seven games and this was game four. So at this point, the Chicago Cubs, they're two, two games to one up. So effectively two games from winning the championship series. They're playing the Detroit Tigers. And game four is taking place at Wrigley Field, which is the Chicago Cubs home field. Um, so there's one particular fan who goes by the name of William Cianis. And this story is actually linked to a curse. So this, this curse, supposedly, is called the Curse of the Billy Goat. And this is all true. It might sound a bit ridiculous, but I would be the ridiculous one if I was coming here to make up a story. <laughs> so you can obviously check this, but literally it's called the Curse of the Billy Goat. That's the infamous name of this story. Um, so yeah, William Cianis happens to be a tavern owner and the name of the tavern is called the Billy Goat Tavern. Now the Billy Goat Tavern takes its name, I presume, from the fact that the owner happens to own a goat and the goat goes by the name of Murphy. Yeah, so William Cianis, Billy Goat Tavern, tavern owner, the mascot you might say, of the, of the tavern is the, the goat, Murphy. So C William Cianis, he purchases two tickets um, for game four at Wrigley Field. And him and his companion go to the, um, the match. And no guesses for who his companion is, or should I say what his companion is. It's Murphy, the goat. So he somehow, you know, manages to get in with the goat. So they're there. He, they, he's got two seats, presumably one for him, one for the goat. Um, and at, at some point, the I think the the Cubs are leading the game as well. But then there's a there's a bit of unrest in the crowd around 
the area where William Cianis is. So basically what's happening is the goat smells and the fans are, are not happy. Those in, in close proximity are not happy. They start to complain. And eventually William Cianis is asked to leave the stadium because, with his goat because you know it was upsetting people. Um, so action was taken. So he was escorted out, presumably with his goat. So William Cianis um, takes offence to this and uh, the legend has it that he then, according to his family, he sent a telegram to the owner of the Chicago Cubs um, and the telegram was saying that the Cubs will never win the World Series again. Now that, you know, there's some speculation about what was exactly how the events took place, how they occurred. But the gist of it is, he said that the Cubs were not going to win again. They're not going to win the World Series or they're not going to win the National League pennant, whatever. Um, okay, so now to kind of like build the picture a bit more. This is 1945. Now the Cubs had not won the World Series. They're in the final here. They hadn't won since 1908. And in 1908, they'd, by 1908, they'd won back to back. So they'd won in 1907 and they'd won in 1908. So we're talking 37 years at this point in 1945, since the Cubs had last won the, uh, the World Series. So you can imagine there's, you know, there must've been a great deal of anticipation at that time. They were getting close. They were, they were ahead in the series in 1945 probably quite hopeful. Well, William Santianis's curse, as it was, he also said that you're not going to win this game, this World Series, and you're not going to win again. So lo and behold, what happened? They lost the 1945 World Series. So now we're going to jump, jump ahead back to 2003. October 14, 2003, we're back at Wrigley Field Stadium. This is game six. The Chicago Cubs are playing the Florida Marlins. Now they're playing them in the National League Championship Series. It's 95 years since they'd won the World Series. So you can imagine the anticipation, you know, game six. They're three runs up. It's the eighth innings. They're three runs up. And they are three games to two up. So if they win this game, they are back in the World Series for the first time since 1945. So Wrigley Field Stadium capacity, 41,000 plus, yeah? Outside the stadium, there are thousands of people more. You know, they're, they're, the expectation is building. You know, there's a story here. You know, people are saying that, oh, we're going to break the curse. You know, we're going to get back to the World Series final. Because that's what it felt like for them. The fact that they've never been back to the final. That curse has, you know, taken hold of the club. The club and taken hold of their precious team. So I hope you're getting the picture now that, you know, there was an immense amount of... Um, hope 
surrounding this particular event. So we go to um, Steve Bartman now, the situation with Steve Bartman. Regular fan, he's there, you know, he's attending. Um, obviously must have been as hopeful as everyone else that the team were gonna do well. But something happened. You know, something happened that changed the course of his life, undoubtedly. Um, so there was a play. And as I said, just remember, there are three runs um, up at this point. So there was a play. Um, I think the ball was fouled left. But it was catchable still. So even though it was a foul ball left, if it had been caught, the player would have been out. Now, I don't know how well you know um, baseball stadiums, but in the outfield, you'll, you'll notice they have high walls. So, um, for example, if the ball is going to be a home run, it has to be a certain, it would have to go over the wall height. And the wall is generally above the head height of the, uh, the outfielder. So, if, for example, if somebody was trying to catch a ball and stop it, stop it going for a home run, they may have to get up well above, you know, head height in order to do that. So this, yeah, so this ball is hit by the batter. It's a foul, it's going left, but it's still in play in terms of it can be cool. And this ball is coming towards where Steve Bartman is amongst other fans. Now, typically a ball that's, that's hit and it's coming towards people in the crowd their natural reaction is to try to catch the ball. You know, that's a typical reaction at, um, you know, a sporting event, ball's coming in your direction. It's, it's the kind of thing that, that people hope would happen, you know, because they would keep the ball as well, generally. So it's like a keepsake, it's a souvenir, it could be worth money, you know, ultimately. So there's, you know, if that happens, that's considered to be an event. So the ball's coming in Steve Bartman's direction. Now he's sitting there, he's got headphones on. Um, and remember this is 2003, so he's got like a, a Sony Walkman. Yeah, you remember those things? Those, um, they look pretty naff now, but they were like, you put a cassette in there, big chunky buttons, you know, you press down the, the rewind or you press the forward, or. The, you know, thank goodness we've come such a long way since then. But, you know, they also had these like really naff foam um, headphones with, yeah, awful stuff. But anyway, so he was wearing um, headphones and apparently he was listening on the radio to the commentary, which is typically what, what a lot of people do. They'll listen to the commentary while, you know, the match is in play. So this ball is coming to Steve Bartman's section of the crowd. Unbeknown to him, there's a fielder who's tracking the ball down. And this fielder is, um, goes by the name of Moises Aloup. From, there's a documentary about this called Catching Hell. So Steve Bartman goes to catch the ball. But as I said, unbeknown to him, there's a fielder. And Moises Aloup is actually going up at the same time to catch the ball. It hits the fans' hands. It hits Steve Bartman's hands. Now he's not alone going for it, but he's the ultimately unfortunate person 
whose hands come into contact with the ball and in so doing prevent the fielder from actually catching it. So we're gonna, I want, there should be a picture on screen for you to see exactly what's happening. So there you see Steve Bartman with the cap, his hands, and you see the, the fielder's Moises Alou's glove. So this is the infamous moment, the Steve Bartman incident. Um, but it's what happened after that. So, as I said, there were three nil up at this point, three runs to nil up. Eventually, you know, the news starts to, to spread about this. So the cameras are obviously getting all these pictures and they start replaying them. Thankfully, there's no um, big screen in the stadium, so the fans in the stadium can't see. But behind the scenes, you know, all hell is breaking loose. The cameras are showing, constantly showing Steve Bartman's face and they're, you know, doing slow-mos of the, of the interfered with potential catch and everything else. And then they're doing freeze frames on Steve Bartman's face, you know, and clearly um, he's the person who's been pointed out as the villain in, in this situation. He's responsible for um, that catch not being made. But, but it's what also happens beyond that. The team absolutely collapse. From 3-0 three, three up, they then um, concede eight runs against them. And they eventually lose the game. So while all this is going on, while they're in the process of, you know, um, conceding all these runs, outside the stadium there, you know, where the fans are also gathered, thousands of fans, they're obviously wondering what's going on. But there happens to be a fan who's standing with a, a small television on his head, you know, back in the day, obviously. Now we'd all have smartphones and stuff, but he had to carry around a television. But anyway, he was standing there with a television on his head, you know, and fans are watching what's going on. So they're seeing the pictures, which the fans in the stadium, most of which are assuming they don't have TVs, um, are not seeing, but then, you know, it starts to, to build and a chant starts and they start to call Steve Bartman by a name, an expletive, one word expletive. Um, and that chant starts to build from outside the stadium. So you can imagine then the people at the, in the bleachers at the back, they start to pick it up first. And then that chant starts to come into the stadium. And it's all, it's all directed at, at one person. You know, so most of, the one, most of the people in the stadium are not even sure who, who it's about at this point, but they're just following, you know, with the crescendo of noise as it's building, they're picking it up. Um, but then eventually people in the crowd start to identify who the guy was. You know, it was, some of them obviously would have seen him, who were nearer to him. And then the scenes start to change, you know, as the team is, is losing, the whole atmosphere is changing, you know, it's affected the team and their performance, then they need, they need to find a reason for it. You know, they need to find somebody responsible. So clearly then it's all pointing towards that particular individual, Steve Bartman. And then things start to get ugly, 
You know, people start to throw drinks at him. They're throwing food at him. There are personal insults being hurled at him, you know, to the point where you start to fear for his safety. Um, so eventually, some security guards feel the need to step in, you know, because because people are approaching him. Um, I believe a, a news reporter even approached him, tried to give him his card. Um, but once the security come on the scene, they do their best to, to get him out of the situation. And they take him away under the stadium as a means of, by means of escape. So while that's happening, you know, as they're leading him out, people are hurling abuse at him still, you know, calling him in all sorts of names, threats, throwing things at him. And then they lead him under the stadium and they, they, they lead him to safety away from the crowds. In the meantime, you know, people are, yeah, beside themselves with anger because it, it looks like the hope of their team finally getting to the, the World Series final, breaking that curse has, has gone. And um, it's at this point that I want to bring in the, um, the idea of the scapegoat. And I have to say, this is not an original idea, actually, in, in the documentary Catching Hell. There's a minister there who um, explains how she used the Steve Bartman incident um, to represent a scapegoat in her sermon. So I'm doing something similar, except my whole sermon is not based on that. But um, but yeah, I want to I want to bring in the correlation at this point about the scapegoat um, and what that means, and to try and help bring some you know, meaning to that. I want to have a look at scriptures. Verse 7, and we read, Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. And also from um, verse 21, we read, And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess it, and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and show and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So Leviticus um, chapter 16, it, it points out, you know, this, this idea about the scapegoat, that's where it comes from. Um, and you hear that it mentions to Azazel. Um, so in verse, verse 8, and Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. So essentially with the two goats, one of them... Um, the purpose of it is for sacrificial blood as part of a, 
a sin offering. And the other one is is deemed to be used as a scapegoat to be sent away. Now, the word Azazel, um, there's been some debate about what that actually means. Um, you know, it's seen as a name of a demon spirit that um, sort of exists in the wilderness. But it's also been um, considered to be a name of a place as well. But in terms of trying to really find you know, something that represented the idea of the scapegoat well and the meaning and where that's come from. Um, I think the Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew lexicon gives a very good um, presentation of that. So it sees it as a reduplicative, you know, of the intensive of the stem. So the stem for the word um, of the word Azazel, the stem appears as hyphen Z hyphen L. It's it's a bit confusing, um, but essentially the stem means to remove. So the reduplication of the stem brings about the word Azazel, which means to remove completely. Now you see that in languages. There are some languages which effectively use the same word to expand upon the meaning. So. You know, literally, it will repeat a word. So, for example, you might use the word sleep, and you might have a word for the for the word sleep. You might have a word sleeping, and it would repeat the same word for sleep to mean sleeping. Some even go further and triplicate it, and they might repeat the same word three times to mean still sleeping. So you get the idea. So those of you out there who are possibly, um, you know, some budding Hebrew scholars or into hermeneutics and etymology, you might want to explore that further, but I'm going to leave that there. Um, but yeah, so we're dealing with the sin offering here. Now there were actually five major offerings of which the sin offering was one. And we'll just look at that really quickly. Um, and that's in, I'm going to go to Leviticus 1, just to my notes here. So the five major offerings. So there was a burnt offering with the emphasis, um, it underscores prayers of petition or peace or praise, sorry. There was a grain offering, which is emphasis is a pleasing aroma, often mirrors emphasis of the offering it accompanies. There's a peace offering the emphasis is the fellowship with the Lord by having a communion meal. Then there's a sin offering. The emphasis being the atonement of a committed sin, the metaphor of purification. And then there's a guilt offering. Also the atonement of a committed sin, metaphor of compensation for wrongdoing. So we're getting the idea that, you know, the purpose of the... Um, of the scapegoat in relation to sin. So now just to build the picture a bit more, the scapegoat, the rituals that took place, for example, that we're talking about with the scapegoat and the two goats, um, that took place on the Day of Atonement. Um, so some of you would know that as, by its Hebrew name of Yom Kippur, which is literally what the Day of Atonement is translated to 
Yom Kippur in, uh, in Hebrew. So the Hebrew calendar, um, the Jewish New Year starts with Rosh Hashanah. Um, for example, this year it starts on the 18th of September um, and runs through. So on the evening, sundown, 18th of September, it runs through to the 28th of September in the evening. Now the most holy day is the Day of Atonement, the day upon which the sin offering takes place and where the scapegoat um, is sent away. And that's significant, that's poignant, you know. We need to bear that in mind. So that being the most holy day, there are particular events which happen on that day, which we want to look at, which I'd like to look at. So, there were two features that distinguish this day of worship. First, it was the one day of the year that the high priest and only the high priest entered the most holy place, the holy of holies, of the tent of the meeting, where he presented sacrificial blood as atoning sacrifice for the sins of Israel and the purification of the tent of meeting. So inside the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant that represented the resident presence of God. The high priest sprinkled blood on the lid, that's the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, achieving the forgiveness of sin for the priest and the congregation. Next, the high priest sprinkled blood in the outer room of the tent of meeting. The blood decontaminated the ceremonial impurities accumulated by the sins and the ceremonial uncleanness committed for the year. The purification of the tent of meeting was national in scope, given a comprehensive purging of sins and impurities. So secondly, the Day of Atonement included a ceremony that involved the expulsion of a living animal from the camp traditionally translated the scapegoat. Um, and then the service would conclude with the Nela, which is a prayer which begins shortly before sunset when the gates of prayer will be closed. Yom Kippur comes to an end with a recitation of Shema Yisrael and the blowing of the shofar. Um, so we see the significance of the shofar for us and what that represents. So as I said, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the most holy day, the most sacred day, the final day of the um, Jewish high holidays, um, high holy days, or high holidays, you know, set apart for God. There's a reason why God made this the most holy day, you know, and, and the events which happen on that day point towards that. So we need to bear that in mind. So yeah, the... Um, the blowing of the shofar marks the conclusion of the fast. Now the shofar is actually also blown um, on the opening day. So the opening day, Rosh Hashanah, the biblical name for that is Yom Teruah, which literally means the day of shouting or blasting. And on that day, the shofar would also be blown traditionally. 
So you're getting the idea now of, you know, of the scapegoat and sort of the history behind it, at least the biblical history behind it and what that represents. I'm, I'm hoping that that picture's starting to come together for you. Now let's, let's shoot forward. In more recent events, um, we'll know that there was a well-publicized and protested death. And that's the death of um, George Floyd at the hands of the, uh, the Minneapolis, the Minneapolis Police Department. You know, I'm not going to go into details about that. I'm sure people have, um, you know, exhausted a lot of the material out there in terms of feeding their, um, yeah, feeding their hunger for that information. What I do want to tell you about, though, is, is what happened to the mayor of uh, Minneapolis during a rally that um, he attended in, in the local community. So during the rally, he was asked more than once to give a yes or no answer to whether he would defund the Minneapolis Police Department. Yeah, to defund effectively to abolish it, to take it out of commission, to take it out of service. So let's get a real idea of what's going on. This was not a cordial conversation. You know, they sought to put pressure on, pressure on him, mentioning the fact that he was up for re-election next year. So you start to see, you know, that there was coercion in there. They were, they were trying to, you know, manipulate him, basically. Um, yeah, so eventually he replied stating, I do not support the fuller abolition of the police. Yeah, so they felt, you know, if they put enough pressure on him, put him on the spot, they could get him to say, yes, I will defund the Minneapolis police. But he stood there in the crowd and said, I do not support the full abolition of the police. At which point, he was forced to walk away through the several thousand strong crowd while they chanted, go home, Jacob, go home. So at the same time, others were hurling, you know, personal insults at him, individual insults, as he began to walk through this crowd. And I say thousands of people all directing their vitriol um, at this man. So these are, these are, for me, scenes reminiscent of a, a well-known HBO series um, where one of the principal characters is made to walk through a crowd and they're all shouting shame at her, you know? Um, yeah, she endured a similar fate. The only difference being that she was completely disrobed at the time. Yeah. If you don't know what that means, she was naked, basically. She had nothing on while she was walking through this crowd and they were shouting shame at her. Um, yeah, thankfully, thankfully the mayor was spared such ignominy. You know, um, having said that in today's crazy world, you know, if he, if he was completely naked, it, 
it probably would have done his uh, chances of re-election some good. Um, but yeah. So that's the idea. Another, another, another example, a more modern example of the scapegoat, you know, where people confer their sins onto something. And the idea behind it is that the thing that they're conferring their sins onto is innocent. You know, um, it's not deserving of what's happening to it, but it's been chosen for that purpose or whatever reason. So we're about to move away now from completely from yeah, um, the book of Leviticus and the scapegoat just for a moment. Um, but an interesting fact that the word Kodesh, which means in Hebrew is for holy, um, is used over 150 times in Leviticus. So if you're wondering what that book is about, that's a, that's a clue for you there. Possibly what are the things that um, you might still be holding on to in your life, um, or you've made excuses for not doing. Maybe something that God has called you to do, something he's called you to change in your life, but you've made excuses for it. You know, we you know, have a habit of sometimes keeping things that we know are not right within us. You know, there are certain things we know we need to let go of, but we find it difficult, and we start to cherish them. And that can be the case with sin as well, you know, and, and it's not necessarily an obvious sin, but it's, it's something that we've, we've bound up in our heart. You know, I was talking earlier about what happened to me and how it planted a seed, it sowed a seed in me, you know, and this can cause us to hold on to things that we really shouldn't be holding on to. So I want you to think about, again, what, you know, some of those things. And I'm going to give a list, and this list is in no particular order. Um, but yeah, just certain things that I've picked out, no particular order in terms of severity, but I'm talking about bitterness, jealousy, pride, envy, shame, unforgiveness and offence. Obviously, this is not an exhaustive list. I, you know, I could go on, and I'm sure you can think of many that I haven't mentioned here. But that's not the point. You know, the point is that I want to represent something here. I want you to get something. So I've picked just these seven, um, and they're not the seven deadly sins. They're just seven, like sins of the heart, the kind of things that people cherish and hold on to. You know. Um, or maybe bound by. So at this point, you know, I might seek to evince you with some facts about, um, you know, emotional and mental health disorders, such as depression and suicidal thoughts, and how they can stem from the sickness of the heart and the condition of the heart. Um, but I'm not going to do that. What I want to do is show you a picture that God has shown me um, of what it represents when we hold on to thing, things in our heart, when we hold on to sin. And hopefully now this will really start to give you a sense of you know, what this is really about. So the picture that God showed me is that, like in the Old Testament, where there was a scapegoat that the sins of the nation, of the people, 
um, that the sins of the people were conferred onto. God has shown me that we in our lives individually cherish certain sins and it's as if we have decided to hold on to the scapegoat. That thing that we've conferred our sin onto and understanding, let's get something clear, we know that this is not how we live anymore. We're not under that covenant anymore. That's the Old Testament, how they did things there. There's a New Testament and I'll get into that. But the picture, I just want you to get the picture that God has shown me is that when we hold on to sins, it's as though we're still under the Old Covenant and yet we're actually holding on to the sin, we're not releasing it. So people are like they're walking around with their sin, like they're walking around with a goat, you know. And this goat is pulling them in different directions. And you need to remember as well that the goat smells. Remember the story with William Cianis, you know, the curse of the billy goat, why he had to leave the stadium. The goat smells. And that aroma is what our sin is like. That aroma coming from the goat is what our sin is like. And I'm not talking about any sin. I'm talking about those things that we willfully hold on to, those things that we know we need to let go of, those things that God has spoken to us about, you know, whether it's directly in the spirit, through his word, through other people, and you're aware of it, but we cover it up, you know. We hold on to it for a reason, we become familiar with it and we make excuses for it. It's like we're holding on to that goat which should have been released and should have been sent away. And then God further enhanced the picture and he said, um, some of you are like goat herders. You don't just have one goat. Over the years, you've gathered several goats. And these things are you're holding on to all of them and they're surrounding you. You know, and um, they're pulling in every direction. And they all smell. <laughs> and he showed me that some of them, sometimes you take one particular goat, you set it on your lap and you give it more attention than you know the others. So you might, on a particular day, you might stroke one goat and hand feed it while it's on your lap. While the other goats are looking on, you know, when is it my turn? God showed me that picture, that that's what, when we hold on to our sins and the way that we are, and how we make excuses for them and how we pamper them and justify them, certain cherished sins in our heart. And as I said, I'm not just talking about sin in general, you know, we know we're forgiven of sin and you know, God understands that, you know, we are sinful in nature and he's made a way out for us. I'm talking about willful sin, when we know we're doing wrong, we keep holding on to it, we cherish it and it's secret, yeah. And we justify it as something else. This is what I'm talking about, the ones we hold on to. Yeah, and um, so this idea about the goat herder, where you've got several around you, and these things smell so bad. It's like the only people that can really bear often to be around you for any amount of time are other goat herders, you know, because they've built up a similar immunity to that smell. 
so they can they can hang out with you it's, it's fine yeah it's cool that you've got all these issues going on that you haven't let go of and you don't want to release it's fine I'm the same so we can you know we got that in common we can get on so I'm, I call this my allegorical metaphor what's coming so I've broken this down in the sense that further still we even give some of them names we give these goats names so I'm going to run through a list for you so it might be the name of the person you're offended at because of what they did and how it makes you feel or the person you need to forgive but just can't bring yourself to do it it might be that person or family you envy because they appear to have so many of the things you want but God hasn't blessed you with or something you did that you're so ashamed of and for which you've never been able to accept God's forgiveness then there's the pride you feel for an achievement you just want everyone to know about at every opportunity. I call that the Facebook or Instagram trophy. And, you know, let's be clear, this type of achievement has nothing to do with glorifying God. But instead, it's a, it's a byproduct of a self-absorbed self culture, which uses social media to promote an image of success and self-esteem and, and just to clarify further the type of self-esteem I'm talking about um, is defined in dictionary.com as an inordinately or exaggeratedly favorable impression of oneself does that sound familiar it certainly does to me or what about the jealousy you might harbor in your heart when a beloved spiritual family member is promoted to a position in the church equal to the one you already occupy when you feel they're not ready and I want to clarify again and distinguish this from the righteous jealousy God speaks about in his word um, and I'll give you a couple of examples so I'm going to read from Exodus, firstly, and uh, chapter 20, verses 3 to 6. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments and the next 
uh, verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 So we're reading from verse 2 to 4. Verses 2 to 4. For I feel a divine jealousy for you. So this is Paul talking to the um, the false apostles, Corinthians church. Corinthian church. For I feel a divine jealousy for you. Um, I betrothed you to the one husband, you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So this is Paul um, just pointing out to the, the church in Corinth um, about their attitude um, and to be aware of the false prophets because they were being enticed, basically, and going away from the truth that they'd, they'd received. And Paul was showing his jealousy for that, for the truth that he had shared. So back to the list. And last but by no means least, the taste of bitterness we experience when life doesn't quite go the way we planned and some of our dreams have faded into the distance with age. Yeah. So as I said, we're obviously, we're not required to live as we did in the Old Testament. You know, God has made a better way for us. There was a new plan, there was a new covenant that came, and that's what we live under now. And, um, yeah, I want to go back to Hebrews 10. So, that was the first scripture I read at the beginning. I said I was not going to elaborate on it, I wanted to sow it as a seed. So, at this point, I wanted to revisit it. So, And this time I'm gonna I'm gonna read on just a little bit further. I'm gonna read on. Um, so I'm gonna read from the beginning again. But I'm gonna read through to verse 18. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. 
Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So we see there that um, God has made it possible for us to be completely free of sin. Um, No need for ritual anymore. Just acceptance of the forgiveness that was that was given through the gift of Christ you know and by the sacrifice of his blood that was sufficient once and for all to take away all our sins so that we need no longer have to make sacrifices repeatedly year on year now for us what does that mean for us today it means that we're free you know We're free to receive the forgiveness. We're free to live without sin because before we were bound. You know, we're born into sin, it's our nature. But once we take on that new nature, we're no longer subject to that, we're free. But the concern is yet that we still choose to willfully hold on to those things as the picture I presented. And that's the question. What are we holding on to? That we've already been forgiven for. That God has already made it possible for us to be free from. And in his view has already been removed from sight. And yet we hold on to these things as though, you know, they're they're still an important part of our life and they they form part of our personality or our character. We have to question that. What are we still holding on to that God is speaking to us about, that he's told us many times to, to deal with that we haven't dealt with? You know? And if I'm speaking to nobody else today, I'm speaking to myself. Because I hear it. You know, and I know it includes me. But I'm asking you also to ask yourself, 
Um, I also want to just add a couple more scriptures to that, just to sort of embellish it a little bit with truth. So we're going to look at Romans chapter 3, 21 to 25. Let's see what it says here. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And just one more scripture, and that's from um, yeah, John chapter 1 and verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And this is um, John the Baptist. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So clearly we see um, the correlation of Christ's life um, and his death and the purpose and as I said, going back now to Leviticus and particularly the Day of Atonement, which was the, you know, the most sacred day um, in the Jewish calendar. You know, the only day that the, the priest would enter the Holy of Holies. There's some significance there why that was the most holy day of the whole calendar, the whole year. Why did God put so much emphasis on that particular day? And what's the relevance of that to us today in relation to sin? You know? And I don't, I don't want to give you the answers. I just want people to kind of get, I'm pointing you towards God. If there are questions that you need to ask yourself, then you need to go to God with those questions. And you need to be honest with yourself about what God is saying to you about things in your life. And as I said, you know, I'm talking to myself. I'm talking to myself right now. But I hope somebody out there is also hearing me. And if it means something to you, that um, you'll move to do something about it. So, as promised, I said that I would revisit the story that I was telling at the beginning um, about what happened with a friend of mine. And I left it where I was speaking with another friend um, and she had invited me to a ministry event. Now this ministry event, I don't remember exactly when it was, um, I believe it was at Hillsong in London, the Tottenham Court Road, but it's all a bit vague still. But anyway, a friend invited me there and um, John and Lisa Bevere were there um, and I 
I knew of them at that time. Um, so I, I attended the event and John was talking about offence. You know, he's talking about how people become offended and how you know that you've been offended and the kind of, you know, fruit that that produces. And immediately, I was convicted at that point. I knew, at that moment, I knew that's what my issue was with my friend, you know, who'd told me the story that she was about her dream, basically, for us. Um, yeah, I was offended. And what I needed to do was actually go to her and ask for her forgiveness for my offence. And it's funny, when I, when I heard that, I knew that that was going to set me free from what I was feeling, what I've been feeling, you know, since I'd learned from her um, what was going on and how she, you know, how she was feeling about us. I knew that that was going to set me free. So immediately after, you know, the, um, the service, the ministry, I left with my friend and I said, you know, I need to, I need to call someone. So I called her and I told her, I forgive her. I said, I forgive you for being offended towards you and what you said. Um, you know, I can't remember what she said. I, I don't believe she said much at all. But I kind of got the sense that it was a relief for her as well, you know, because she was obviously sensing that something, there were things weren't good between us. I mean, the truth is we were never going to be friends in the way that we were because of what happened. It, it just it just broke our relationship. But at least the feeling that I had towards her whole offence, I was ultimately set free from. Um, and it was just through that recognising what I needed to do. Yeah, so there is a way out. We just need to, we need to get the answers and the only place to go for that you know, it's to God and God will do it either directly through you or through others, you know, he'll, he'll make a way out, he'll give you an answer. So as I said, I'm coming, I'm coming to a close now. Um, and I want to finish with just one more story. Now, um, this is a story by a, a dearly departed brother. Um, the evangelist Reinhard Bonnke and the story is called The Foolproof Recipe for Victory um, so I'm just going to read that for you maybe you have not read this before this is how my parable begins let me call him John John had a double story house five plus five rooms. One day, there was a gentle knock on the front door. When John opened it, it was the Lord Jesus. Please come in, John pleaded. I will give you the best room in my house. It is upstairs. Well, Jesus is a gentleman and said, thank you. The next morning, someone hammered against the front door. When John opened it, who was there? The devil. No, shouted John, I don't want you here. But the devil said, I'm already in. And a big fight started. Satan poured filthy temptation on him. 
It was horrible. By the end of the evening, John somehow got the victory and threw the devil out. Then he said, wait a minute, I gave Jesus the best room in the house. Why didn't he come to my rescue? Jesus said to John, look, you gave me one of 10 rooms. John was on his knees and said, I can see my mistake. Sorry, Lord, let's make 50-50. Jesus is a gentleman and accepted. The next day was a repeat of the day before. Somehow the devil got in and out and John was totally exhausted. Why didn't Jesus come to my rescue today? I need to go and ask. The Lord said, my son, why don't you give me all 10 rooms? And then instead of me staying with you, you stay with me. John broke down. He pulled the key out of the front door from his pocket and handed it to Jesus. Now he had given it all. The next morning it was still dark when someone was knocking at the front door so hard that the whole building shook. John jumped frightened and shaken out of bed crying, oh, it's the devil again, when suddenly he heard footsteps, but this time inside the house. Jesus was marching in majesty and power towards the front door. He had the key. It was now his duty to answer the door. John was wondering what would happen and stood right behind Jesus when the Lord opened the door wide. Who was it? The devil, of course. But when the devil saw Jesus standing in the door, he bowed low, very low indeed, and said, Sorry, sir, I knocked on the wrong door. Some have given nine rooms to Jesus, and on the door of room number 10, they have written, Strictly Private. It is there where they have their secret sins and live their double life. But Jesus cannot be cheated. So, if you recognize that you are harboring secret and cherished sins, perhaps now is the time to pray and ask God to help you to acknowledge them and remove them from your life. So I'm just going to read this prayer and this prayer is going to close um, today's talk message. Lord, I know that I harbor sins within me. In my foolishness, I believe I have kept hidden from you, but you know everything about me. Nothing comes as a surprise to you. Hear me now as I confess these secret sins, those that I cherish and kept hidden. I no longer want this behavior in my life. Lord, help me to bring them to light and give me the strength to tear down and remove their stronghold on my life. My heart's singular desire is to live a life dedicated to you and in worship to you only with a clear conscience and a clean heart. If there are other cherished sins remaining in me that I have yet to recognize or have disregarded, please reveal them also that I may be free of their control. I pray in the name of Jesus, amen. And I leave you with this encouragement from David. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Psalm 32, 1.
So if, um, if you need ministry, there will be a link below that you can uh, go to. And um, yeah, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching and um, be blessed. <laughs>